I'm Sam Mitchell, and these are my stories. Hi, folks. Having a good day today. Let me the first welcome you to Autism Rocks and Rolls. Now, before we get a mess up, I am not a psychiatrist. If you're starting to be diagnosed with autism, please see a physician. I always give you some of my experiences. That's on the right to the intro and natural that I found on freemindy.com. I also have a mission statement interview with all of you. The mission of Autism Rocks and Rolls is to take the stigma off of autism and other conditions that may think are disabilities. People on the spectrum are not broken and do not need to be fixed. Those have conditions or those want to be pitied. There's nothing to be sorry about. I also have some people I'd like to thank. I must thank my earlier guests, Margie Williamson and Danny Blumens. For listeners C244 giving my wings to Margie Williamson and Danny Bloom, but what sweet and influential ladies. Thank you both so much. Everyone, be sure to check out our ARAR's new spinoff podcast hosted by my mother at C105 Meet My Mother for more information. But this podcast is called Nobody Lives a Life Where Every Day Is Okay, and you can find it on Podbean. You will not be sorry if you choose to check it out. I have received some new Cutthroat Kitchen fan mail. The chefs include Chef Mick Brown, Chef Michael Midgley, Chef Chris O, the Rebel Chef Terry French, and Chef Chris Gentile. Thank you all for responding. And since the last episode, I have appeared on the Right From The Couch podcast with Jared Hits Swain. What a great podcast, everyone. Now, folks, we'll be right back in here and add it from the barn on Maryland Ridge. So let's get to it. There's a hidden gem in Eastern Green County, folks. Fowler's Pumpkin Patch in the barn on Maryland Ridge Running Barn. Autism Rocks and Rolls is very proud to tell you about our friends, Perry and Renee Fowler, and their place of business. Both Fowler Pumpkin Patch and the barn on Maryland Ridge is a relaxing drive approximately 15 minutes from the heart of Bloomington, Indiana, and an hour south of Indianapolis. You can find them at 5347 South Green County Line Road, Bloomington, Indiana, 47403. The property has numerous pictures locations, including several rolling fields, antique tractors, random rustic barns, trees, and much more. Customized wedding packages are offered on their website. The surrounding area also provides several hotels in which to have your guests stay for your destination wedding. Also, Fowler Pumpkin Patch is a family-owned and operated seasonal pumpkin patch. It's the perfect place to take your family for some fall fun. Enjoy picking up pumpkins, hay ride, a mates, and a petting zoo. Call the Fowler today at 812-327-485 or 812-325-6022. All right, folks, we're back. And yes, you'll definitely hear the words I do at this wedding barn. I have a fellow Hoosier and autism advocate, Adrian Nassim, as a star of my show. Adrian Nassim is originally from Floyd County, Indiana. She was diagnosed with mild cerebral palsy at birth and a learning disability at age five and an autism spectrum disorder at age 20. She currently lives in Bloomington, Indiana, and works part-time at the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community on IU Bloomington's campus. There, she gives lectures to college students on autism and learning disabilities on children, teens, and young adults. Adria also writes for the monthly newsletter of Indiana Resource Center for Autism, a division of the IIDC, and contributes a column to Blue Magazine dedicated to autism and developmental disabilities. A bonus fact about her is that she has a service dog, Thomas, or Mr. T, a yellow lab from the Indiana Cane Assistant Network, trained to assist with cerebral palsy and autism. Let's welcome my fascinating friend to Autism Rocks and Rolls. Adria, how are we doing, my friend? Doing pretty well. How are you? I am not too bad. So my first question to you is, what does having autism mean to you? I guess you could say, first off, I was raised by my mom was a pediatrician in Southern Indiana in New Albany was her main practice. And then she has a satellite practice in Salem, just retired last August after 36 years. Now, my sister's a dermatologist in Indianapolis. My brother-in-law, her husband, Eric, is an interventional radiologist. I tend to look at a lot of medical conditions, disabilities, 
perspective because I've lived around doctors. I look at the DSM-5 definition now and how it's expanded to include kids that may not have the verbal delay and the expressive language delay, which was me, which formerly may have been characterized as Asperger's syndrome. Autism affects how I interact socially. It affects my emotional developmental level. I had to learn a lot of social skills and how to interact with people in my young adult years. It affects my sensory perception. When I was little, I didn't like, and I still don't like a lot of loud noise, but my mom would tell you that if like our security system went off on accident in our house, I would immediately run outside and start crying. We had a fire drill at school. I always had to have a buddy to help me get out of the building. I never liked tags in my shirts i would always be dancing when it was school clothes shopping season i am very routine driven and like a lot of consistency as many children and young adults with autism tend to i've learned to embrace change in schedule and work with it that had to be taught to me well what's frustrating is these skills can be taken for granted and the fact that our disability is hidden i've had some experience with that many people especially around the bloomington area know what the ICAM program is because there is actually a student organization on iu campus called ican at iu that helps to train the younger dogs and puppies in training and do a lot of the public exposure with the puppies and dogs before they go through graduation and they're paired up with their client where they might take them to Chipotle for lunch, they might take them to Target, they might take them and sit them in an IU lecture hall so they know how to be quiet and sit on their little mat and while the kid is in class. And they're not sniffing the floor, they're not up wandering. Still, I have had some people come up like I'll be walking him around and they say Sam sorry the dog can't visit right now it's a service dog and he's working and they'll stop me and they say oh my goodness I didn't even see the vest I have had experience with clients that have significant physical disabilities they may be out with their dogs and people just see the dogs and they know because the disability for them tends to be more visible people just automatically tend to let the dog be whereas with me it's oh my gosh it, it does have a vest on it has a vest on says it right there even if it doesn't say service dog leave it alone it does say it says i can as the abbreviation and then it says indiana canine assistant network and it says service dog working what were your initial thoughts when you learned that you had autism i have to be honest it was a relief to me i remember as i said in my bio i was 20 i had just finished my freshman year of college it was that summer so it was 2006 my mother had taken me to a very good friend of hers who she also attended medical school with and has a practice in Louisville. This particular provider was the one to initially diagnose me with a learning disability when I was five. She had a colleague of hers who is a child and adolescent psychologist do an assessment on me. It assesses both their verbal IQ as well as their functional problem solving. Verbal falls under literacy, but functional problem solving and daily skills. But after he rendered the results, it went to her and she had to dictate it and she had to write it out. She called my parents and we had a one-on-one -on -one meeting. And I remember first she pulled my parents in the room privately and then they came in and they pulled me in. And I remember her distinctly saying, yes, I think she fits what was then the diagnostic profile for what was Asperger's syndrome. You would have thought maybe some kids would have been frustrated or I have this new diagnosis why me but honestly I felt a very big sense of relief there was a reason as to why I was working as hard as I could in school I was always very diligent I applied myself very well 
the kids liked me in school and I was always seen as very friendly, very helpful, but I was never one to have a close group of friends. I didn't tend to understand how to mix and mingle around the other kids and make friends and keep them well. And so now we had an actual reason and what I would see as a very good reason can't take it away. Reason as to why I was doing very good in the classroom, but outside of the classroom, the world was just a big confusing bubble had I not heard the words out of her mouth of yes I think she fits the profile for what was then Asperger's syndrome and what is now level one autism you would have probably seen a very significant amount of continued psychological downturn self-loathing doubt a lot of self-negativity and yes I was at this point in my life in clinical counseling and psychological counseling for anxiety and depression. I did benefit a lot from it. The way I was told was through a book, but after I was told, I'm with you, my life made more sense. Honestly though, it didn't matter. I was just like, okay, this is why I get the stares. This is why I get the bullying. We just need to teach these people who are on the spectrum it's just a diagnosis. One of the hardest things many times for teens and young adults is to cross that bridge of self-acceptance of their diagnosis, whether it be autism, whether it be learning disability, especially when you look with young people who are straddling the world of developmental disability, but have higher levels of social awareness, higher levels of intellectual awareness, and higher cognition. And it took me, if I may be so frank, until I was probably mid-20s with private clinical psychotherapy consistently to really understand that yes this is the way I am I cannot change who I am but life is going to be okay in fact life can be good there's some great stuff about life we got pretty cool creatures on here like service dogs he's a good boy I can imagine we'll get more to him later but I want to know how do you think our brains operate for a brain that has autism you know I think if I can preface this part of the discussion I think what fascinated me because I as you said in my bio I go around and I talk to college kids sometimes businesses and speak at conferences about working with young people with autism and I think what drew me to studying autism initially was first that I wanted to find out how my brain worked but just overall the broadness of the scope of the entire autism spectrum the fact that you could have me sitting on one end of the room who had to learn to hug my own parents and instead of go over and ask mommy and daddy for a hug, I'd be sitting in the corner rocking. But also little me who at eight years old could sing songs in Spanish after hearing the song three times. That's how they learn about the world is through one-on-one instruction. You can have other young people that do clinically qualify for an autism diagnosis that need anywhere from 12 to 24 hour monitoring that may have self-stimulatory or stimming behaviors to self-soothe in an environment that's too overstimulating to calm themselves. In the case of more significant autism, you can have minimal to no spoken language, but in that case, you can look at other means of communication like American Sign Language, alternative communication devices, a tablet, pictorial icon cards. It honestly depends, I would venture to say, the individual and their own experience. And I'd like to take this a minute to just thank you and your team for what you guys do, because I think the more experiences we have, the better off the world will be. Brain will be one in 27 
but you make a valid point. Numbers are numbers. We all perceive our labels differently. Some people don't like it because it's brought them down so much that they want it out of their brains. What advice would you give to someone who just learned they had autism? It depends on if it's a parent or provider, or it depends on if it's a individual themselves. If it is a parent or provider, build a support community around you. Talk to other parents who have children or young people of similar to your child's age and experience talk about what worked for them what did not the earlier you can access services the better and you have to think that services and supports although it is possible to have a negative experience with a certain provider or a certain type of intervention the bulk of services and support and the bulk of professionals in the autism field, they are there to try their best to enhance your child's quality of life. And even if you don't think that they're helping you, it's for your better because sometimes what they do is not seeming like it's help, but it is. That is the ultimate goal, yes. Can you remind me, how'd you hear about my show? If I remember correctly, I read an article in the Herald Times when I was with the Herald Times initially for five years because I started my column about autism and developmental disability. I was with the Herald Times for five years, but I saw an article about a young adult in Greene County starts a podcast about autism and I thought oh my god like this is cool and so I looked at the headline and I thought who took this story but I looked up her email and then it showed her phone number on the news desk and I called this particular young lady and I said do you have contact information for this gentleman uh, Sam Mitchell and she gave it to me she shot me her email and so I emailed you I said I work with the Herald Times I write a column about autism I just want to say you know what you're doing is really awesome thank you so much and if I remember the time you had me on the show and I started talking about what I was doing I think this is the first time having the show but I remember speaking with you I remember that we had done a class presentation for Dr. Murray, who at the time was teaching in the medical school at IU. Also, how was working for the Herald Times? Was that fun? It was, I have to say, I just made some choices and went in a different direction. I'm very thankful to have had that experience. So now I want to talk to you more about your cerebral palsy and learning disabilities. So what resources do you use for your cerebral palsy? I've never known life without it. And cerebral palsy, I should say, it's similar in the way that it's not like you can wake up one day and all of a sudden say, oh my goodness, I have cerebral palsy now. Or in the same vein that a kid or adult can wake up one Tuesday morning and say, oh my goodness, I have autism now, unless they've been wondering about themselves and they up and decide to go to a clinical educational psychologist and schedule an evaluation. Apparently my mom, the nurses and the doctors came in and told her, your child is diagnosed with cerebral palsy. And they knew that I would be diagnosed with some sort of developmental disability. They didn't know what degree. I was born very, very early. I'm not sure that I said this initially, but I was born three months premature and I weighed a pound 15 ounces, <laughs> which caused my brain went without oxygen for X number of minutes. I applaud you for remember when you were born in the hospital or how tall you were and the pounds you were. I don't remember that. I guess I was pretty short because I'm a short person. So. The only reason I remember is because a lot of times I get presentations to little kids too my mom has pictures she tells me that for reference to little kids open your hand the way you would cup water underneath a sink and imagine that on the tip of your hands is the baby's head and on the palm of your hand is the baby's body and dangling off your wrist 
if you cup your hands, are the baby's feet. And that's the way my parents held me. Now, mind you, they didn't hold me until June 17th, and I was born March 30th of 1986. So as soon as I was born, essentially, I was whisked off to the neonatal intensive care unit because I was so sick. She was in her residency when I was born to be a pediatrician. She couldn't hold me until three months later. So every day she would come to the NICU and there was a hole in the little incubator and she would put her finger to that hole and she would touch my finger. I bet that was a special moment for your mom. I suppose. It wasn't like you hold a baby to your chest. I was in her little hands. And my grandmother had to sew my baby clothes because all the baby clothes in the stores were way too big. When did your parents start seeing you had a learning disability too? The only thing I'm aware of was that I was diagnosed at five. And it is a specific type of learning disability. There's multiple types of learning disability. Can I just take a guess real quickly and say, is it dyscalculia? That is one type, yes. I have multiple. The overall specific type that I have is called nonverbal learning disability. People sometimes get confused when I use this term because they think it has to do with the individual's ability to communicate verbally, and it doesn't. And they will say, wow, for someone nonverbal, you communicate very well. And I have to turn around and say it actually has to do with things that are not verbally based. So the verbal ability in kids with nonverbal learning disability tends to be very high. It is things that are not derived from verbal skills like can you find your way around an environment? Can you tie your shoelaces with typical laces? No. And can you match them to where they cross over right and you don't trip on them? Not really. Can you tell what time it is on a clock that isn't digital? Not really. Can you even, if you think of going through the checkout lane at Target and matching the debit card through the debit card reader with the picture? Not well. Oh, don't so worry about like- that. I still fumble at the cash register. That'll be three seventy-five. Uh, well, shoot. Let me count out three. Let me count three seventy-five cents. Sorry, guys. I'm holding up the line. Really am. I've gotten a lot of people mad at me when I'm at the cashier. I'm just like, can someone just else pay for it? <laughs> you did work for the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community. So how did you get to work for the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community? It was maybe 2017. I got a call from Susie Rennie, who was then the CEO of an organization here in Bloomington called Life Designs that does support services for adults with developmental disabilities all over South Central Indiana. I was at the time a client uh, with them. And she said, are you interested in another part-time job? Because I was then hired at the Herald Times already. And I said, well, what do you got? She said, I just got off the phone with Derek Nord. Derek Nord is the overall director of the entire institute. I asked, who is he? And you know, what does he do? She said, they're looking to hire an individual with history of developmental disability to do policy and advocacy work. And well, and Derek called me, meaning Susie, asking, do we have any clients at Life Designs that are looking for work that would fit that bill? And I mentioned your name. Well, I guess it was a couple of days later. I went down there and I sat for an interview and I met with Derek and his team. I liked him a lot. And eventually I was hired. Three, I saw a project. I want to get more into because that's probably what made the difference. So why don't you first tell us about Adria's notebook? And what that is. I don't do that anymore, but I did for a number of years. I wrote a blog 
for the Institute on promoting independent living and community involvement and engagement in teens and young adults with developmental disability. It is still available if you go to blog.iu.edu slash Notebook. You can read all about it. And I would write at least once a month. If you had a pick, what was your favorite blog you wrote? This really doesn't have to do with developmental disability as a whole, but I remember it's more specific to me. And a lot of times it was written from personal experience. I remember that Mr. T's birthday or Thomas is in June. So one time for our June entry, we did a post on happy birthday to Thomas. And we listed random questions that people ask all the time about Thomas. Like, what are his favorite toys to play with? What is his favorite jackpot treat? What is his favorite skill to do? Where is his favorite place in Bloomington that he's ever been? Well, granted, I've only been matched with him for two years. We took funny pictures of him. One of them we got from one of the puppy raisers that helped raise him at ICANN, and it was him in a birthday hat. Let's talk about him now. Why not? So what does Mr. T help you with? Mr. T or Thomas, which was the name that ICANN gave him. He is a service dog that was trained through ICANN. For the autism, he helps with crossing streets safely. Um, You tell him a specific cue, and I'm supposed to cross first because he can't be learning to pull me and learning that he rules the world and decides to go before me. As long as I go and tell him when to go, he will go. Another thing that happens when I was born is the area of the brain that was affected is the area that controls visual spatial reasoning for me to understand how fast a car is going, how far away it is, how much time I have before the car hits potentially. That is very, very risky. So to be able to have a dog and hold a dog leash and say, okay, puppy, go, is a lot safer to walk with a dog than just say, okay, Adrian, go. Especially in downtown Bloomington, where I'm from, like, God bless IU and the fact that it's here. But I'm not just blaming the college kids, but yes, people pull out, people cut like crazy. <laughs> he also helps with social interaction and social skills building for the autism. They see me with him and they're like, oh, how's Mr. T? What are you working on? He's a very good social icebreaker. People like to see him perform his skills. He also helps with balance and stability uh, when walking and on stairs for the cerebral palsy. He can pick up objects. He can retrieve things and bring them to me. He can shut the refrigerator. (laughs) He can the wheelchair accessible door buttons. He can push those. Primarily a lot of ICANN's clientele that receive mobility assistance dogs are clients in wheelchairs or clients with extremely limited mobility. They teach things that potentially a wheelchair user would need. But sometimes just for kicks, just because he likes it, I'll let him open the door with the button and he thinks it's the greatest thing. When we did that speaking engagement, you said he likes rugs. When did Thomas start liking rugs? Oh, did I? I think I did, didn't I? Yes, he likes rugs. I think he started honestly liking rugs when he was probably in training as a puppy because that is a behavior that the ICANN handlers instilled in him. They told us when we were in team training and when we were receiving the dogs, we had to go through like a week long, I guess you could call it training camp 
to learn how to work the particular dogs that we were matched with and like all their cues and how do you get them to ignore this, that, and the other, and what do you do if they do this? But one thing they told us is there were specific dogs in his class that some of them, for example, if you take them to a restaurant, some of them are fine just sitting on the floor next to the table or under the table. Some of them, like Mr. T, can have little ants in their pants sometimes and like to get up, say, oh, what's this? Oh, let's go see this. Or, oh, let's try and go um, visit. And he won't. They told us to bring like a towel, bring a map, bring something that he can lay on. I don't care if it's a yoga mat, bring a blankie. Something that signals to him, this is your spot. I don't care if you scratch. I don't care if you look around. I don't care if you lay down. Just stay on that spot. Stay on your spot until I cue you. You can get off it. What's the cue for him to get off of it? Either S-T-A-N-D or O-F-F. There was a command you also did at the place when we spoke together. It was leave it. I was wondering what that meant. I don't know what that would have been for at that particular instance, but leave it to the ICANN dogs. To Lou, my former service dog's name was Lucy, and you may have met Lucy. I don't know. Lucy was a yellow lab. She's now 13, almost 14, and in retirement. She's actually sitting here with Thomas on the floor right now. I have her about the month because my parents are moving to Indianapolis. Lucy knew leave it as just generally ignore said object. The eye can dog, like Thomas, know the phrase leave it as leave alone something that is dangerous and will hurt you. For example, if you are handing out Halloween candy on Halloween night and you spill Hershey kisses on the concrete, yes, that is leave it. If you are taking meds or giving meds to some little kid that you're watching and you spill Advil, that is leave it. But I do remember maybe it was because that room we were in, we were in the medical school, just for some background at IU, and that room smelled like formaldehyde because apparently Dr. Murray said they had been doing something with cadavers. And he was very triggered by the smells. And so at some point, yes, I may have said formaldehyde is a preservative chemical. And I'm thinking, okay. And I knew he would be stimulated in that room. I mean, formaldehyde to a dog is absolutely interesting. Yeah, dogs are very interesting. It's interesting that we can eat chocolate and they can't. But we can have rotten meat, but they can have rotten meat. So you also do lectures. Is giving lectures therapeutic for you? If so, how? I don't know if I would say therapeutic, but it's very enjoyable to me. I love to talk to the students about my personal experience, but also, you know, give them some clinical knowledge, prepare them for potentially what they can see in the future. I make it as fun and as engaging as I can. I'm getting ready to do one here in a few weeks about sensory processing issues in kids with autism. And I pretty much say at the start of each lecture, you guys can ask me whatever you like. I don't bite. I mean, I would prefer it be topical to the lecture, but if you'd like me to give you my opinion of my favorite musical artist, my favorite food. I mean, I suppose, unless your professor cares, I will. Um, well, who is your favorite musical artist? That we're getting into it. I like the Beatles. I like Ed Sheeran. I like Maroon 5. I like Taylor Swift. I'll be honest. I tried to get tickets in Indianapolis. Couldn't get them. <laughs> you tried at least, right? You can at least say that. Yes, I did try. What is the one message that you hope people receive from your lectures? Honestly... This is kind of like the question about autism and what is autism like. It varies based on the topic of the lecture. Usually has something to do with some aspect of autism, but the professor will contact me and say, X and Y, we're doing a unit on autism. Can you come? 
talk to my students, and I will. But if they just want to do an overview of autism in children and me share some history of my life as a child, I will. If they want me to talk about transition and issues facing young adults, I sure can. But that's going to be very different. I mean, talking about issues facing a three-year-old with autism is quite different than talking about issues facing a 25-year-old. You also started writing for the Indiana Resource Center for Autism. So when did you start writing a newsletter for the Indiana Resource Center for Autism? That was shortly after I left the Herald Times, which is the city paper up here in Bloomington. If you're listening and you're not in Bloomington, I keep forgetting. I do that too sometimes, but continue. Kathy Pratt, who was then the director of the Indiana Research Center for Autism, we since have a new director, Dr. Rebecca Martinez, but Kathy Pratt initially approached me and said, would you be interested in coming to write for our newsletter? And I said, sure. Now, folks, we'll be right back. We hear an ad from the Doug Flutie Jr. Autism Foundation. So let's get to it. At the Doug Flutie Autism Foundation, Massachusetts, people are receiving hope. The organization was established in 1998 by Doug Flutie, a former quarterback for Boston College and the NFL and his wife, Lori, in the memory of their son, Dougie, who was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. The goal of the Flutie Foundation is to improve the quality of life for those with autism and their families. The biggest action they like to do is give grants and host their annual Stars on the Spectrum golf event. Our goal is to offer chances for physical and social activity outside of work or school, a path for education or employment during the day, and the resources need to always feel safe, supported, and informed, the Doug Flutie Jr. Foundation says. Make sure to visit them on their website, www.flutiefoundation.org, or follow them on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or even YouTube to see all the stars they have to offer. Finally, this was my testimony. It would be my testimony for the Doug Jr. Flutie Autism Foundation. All right, folks, we're back. And you might meet Doug Flutie there. You never know. So, Adrian, you also got involved with Bloom Magazine. So, tell us how you got involved with Bloom Magazine. So, I got involved with Bloom Magazine. And again, if you're outside Bloomington, Indiana, you may not be familiar with Bloom, but it is a local magazine that is published quarterly here in the Bloomington, Indiana area by editor and publisher Malcolm Abrams. It's a lifestyle magazine essentially that covers life in Bloomington, events, community figures, happenings in Bloomington. Malcolm is a quite well-known figure in the Bloomington area. He would follow my column in the Herald Times and we would see each other around town. I should say, this is this is backstory, but I feel that I should probably say, I initially interviewed a long time ago, probably in 2010 maybe, to take an internship position with Bloom Magazine. And I did not accept it. And I don't entirely know that it was extended to me. I think they went with someone else. But it was fine with me because it wouldn't have been what I was looking for. It was more to the lines of putting things in envelopes, cleaning the office, making sure everything was laid out the way it should be, stamping envelopes. In 2010, I was finishing up support services at a private independent living skills and post-secondary program for college students with verbal autism and learning disability here in Bloomington. It's called the College Internship Program. They have multiple centers across America, but the Bloomington Center is the only one in the Midwest. And I was looking at an internship with Bloom Magazine. Years later, I started writing for the Indiana Daily Student. I finished my time. I got a job, an actual position with the city paper here in Bloomington. I came and when I was hired by former editor of the Herald Times, Bob Zaltzberg, he asked me, Adria, if you would be interested in coming to write for us, what would you write about? And I told him, I think I'd be very interested in doing a column 
dedicated to developmental disability and autism. And so Malcolm, who also subscribed to the paper, would see my column every couple of weeks. And he said, I like your column. I think you're doing a wonderful job. So he would keep an eye on it and he would read it. When I left the Herald Times, he came to me and he sent me an email and he said, would you be interested in coming to Bloom Magazine? My initial reaction was, oh my goodness, like I thought this chapter was over, but I was very pleased and I said, yes, thank you very much. And I accepted. So in a sense, you did time traveling almost. I did. (laughs) But even though we're smiling, we have to get into something that really did kind of bother me. I apologize that you went through this and that was going through bullying. And I went through bullying too. How can we help others who are getting bullied for being different and see that we're not the problem? Part of it goes back to creating that young person, whether it be with autism, with um, learning disability, whatever the diagnosis be, creating that young person a safety net of who are your people you can go to that will stand up for you, will love you for you. That goes for peers as well as school staff, people on school grounds that are the adult, the administration, the coaches, the lunchroom staff that are the advocates for the kids. And I think one thing, if parents and professionals are listening now, to always keep in mind is particularly, yes, keep an eye on all kids in your schools, but particularly kids with developmental disability. I would absolutely venture to say to have adults, if you can, in places where adults usually may not be. Because that's where bullying typically tends to happen. The locker room, the cafeteria, the playgrounds. I mean, they have playground staff, but kids go off in their little groups. They find a little kid sitting on the curb playing with their phone. Hey kid, what are you doing? With disability, not always, but sometimes with disability also comes social and economic disadvantage. Keep an eye on kids who may be lower income because that can also be a reason for kids to say, oh, I don't like you. Like you don't have the $500 messy jersey. But for the kids, I would say it's hard now. But if you can find people who love you despite the fact that you have autism, a learning disability, and say, you know what, you may have all that, but you're Adria, and we really like Adria. You, you can come hang with us. Your community is out there, and I encourage you to spread your wings to find your little niche of people and see where it goes. I agree with you, but I wouldn't have agreed with you when I was 15. I thought I was just no, no friends. I'm a piece of garbage. Let me ask you this then. So it seems like you do have a lot of good days. and I'm very thankful for that. I do too. But do you still have maybe bad days where you still think, even though it's been so long, the bullying kind of bites you in the butt? Recently, I was out just taking Thomas for a walk in the neighborhood and I think it was move-in week for IU. Here we go with the invisibility of autism. A young woman, and this person I presume to be either her boyfriend or her husband, were standing in the middle of the sidewalk, like literally to the point that you almost had no passing room, looking at their cell phone. And then I was trying to just be as polite as I could and get Mr. T to pass them so we could keep on walking. And the young woman, like she thought I didn't hear, she starts whispering to her husband and looking over at me. And she says, well, take up the whole sidewalk, why don't you? I almost thought about not saying anything, but I did actually finally kind of just turn to her and I said, ma'am, 
I'm not trying to inconvenience you guys. I just want you to know that there's a reason why I walk in the middle of the sidewalk. And it's because I was born three months premature and I sustained quite a complicated brain injury, which injured the part of the brain that is responsible for visual spatial functioning. My brain does not have concept of how far away I am from something or how much space I have before I hit something or will be hit and then she got very very quiet and she said oh I'm sorry and I said it's okay just maybe in the future you shouldn't prejudge and you shouldn't try to be so insensitive and I I feel the depth perception issue by the way because I don't drive for that reason yeah and I just kept walking she starts screaming at me starts yelling at me calling me like different obscenities and whatever and I just kept walking yeah you don't need to hear that you got other stuff to hear that's positive I was halfway down the sidewalk then telling T uh, that he was being a good boy for standing still. However, even though you dealt with bullying, you had a really cool CIP transformational experience. So why was your experience with CIP transformational? Along with my parents, who've always been very, very supportive and were very instrumental in helping me access services very, very young. By the time I was 14 months, it helped me gain the skills that I needed to be independent and to further me to the young adult life that my parents had always hoped for. I still require day-to-day support. And I'll be honest, I don't know any young adult who's on the spectrum or has a developmental disability that doesn't receive some level of day-to-day support. But it really did up my confidence in vocational skills, social skills. What's frustrating actually is they treat interdependently like a bad word. And there's nothing bad with that word. At least in my experience, many times parents especially parents with young people that tend to have higher cognition and higher levels of social awareness when they are approaching or have already exited high school, they can struggle, not always, but they can struggle with the idea of facing the idea of supported independent living for their kid. If my kid is doing well in school or can do well in school, then he should be okay with life skills or he's going to be okay. You know, once we get him maybe a couple months of clinical and psychological counseling or a couple months of ABA, he'll be okay and he'll live on his own. He'll have a 30, 40 hours a week job. And I think it can be an adjustment. In all honesty, I want people to know I have never been a parent. I am a adult child who was raised by two very involved parents and now go out and do advocacy work. The only thing I can speak from is my experience, but can be an adjustment. Speaking of independent living, I did see something else on the Indiana Institute on Disability and Community. You made a video about the importance of having home and community-based services. Can you tell us why is it so important to have home and community-based services? Now you're getting into the stuff that I've talked to lawmakers about before. Home and community-based services, one of the bread and butter of helping young people with developmental disabilities and medical complexity to really be able to live and thrive to whatever their fullest potential may be in their own communities and be part of the greater community. It doesn't matter the level of diagnostic functionality for everybody 
who falls under the umbrella of developmental disability and or medical complexity, home and community-based services, that's what allows us to grow, live, and thrive and do life. To my understanding, once the kid leaves high school, it is paid for. And some children can qualify for the Medicaid waiver too, but some of my services that fall under home and community-based, for me particularly, would be psychiatry, mental health. Also, gotcha. And I love the fact that you get that because mental health matters. It does. There's a very high correlation between autism spectrum diagnosis and mental health co-occurring disorder, whether it be anxiety, depression, OCD, bipolar. Another one for me is behavioral support services. Speaking of law enforcement, you did present a while back to the Bloomington Police Department. What did you hope the Bloomington Police Department took from your presentation? It wasn't just me. It was me and another professor in the social work department. Her name is Kristen Hamry here at IU, and we together, we did it. Kristen talked about some reasons a police department might receive calls about autism, some of the clinical hallmarks of autism, how to facilitate potentially a successful interaction with a city resident that has autism, some things you can do. I talked about my experience living in Bloomington with autism. And I have to say, I've never had any interaction with law enforcement at all. I know some young people with autism can. But I just had to hypothetically say, I can imagine that for Adrian Asim to be approached by the police and say, put your hands up. And I gave the example of many times if you don't follow directions, what do they do? They run faster. They yell louder. They may pull a taser out, um, pull pepper spray in some cases, pull a gun. And I gave the example of what do young people and adults with autism sometimes not like is loud noise. Oh, this what is my do... favorite. Freeze, get on the ground. How are you supposed to freeze and get on the ground at the same time? Do you freeze and then fall on the floor? There's an example of some young people with autism may take that literally. And what do I do first? And then they start to panic. That would be me. I'd be like, uh... How do I do this? Do I freeze and then do I fall? Literally freeze in the refrigerator? We talked about the use of literal language. So if you say freeze, what does that mean? So I just gave them, for example, my assessment of if I were ever in, in a situation that warranted call to the police, what would I feel like? I would probably run, which would then escalate to them running. And this is personal information, but I'm also diagnosed with a co-occurring anxiety disorder. I said, Mom, if you were up there talking on my behalf about raising now a young adult with autism, what would you say? And she would say, I would venture to guess that Adrian Asim would cry her eyes out. Lack of following instructions is not to upset you. It's to... Because they're so amped up, they can't think straight. You also served as a board member for the Monroe County Autism Foundation. So what did you and other board members of the Monroe County Autism Foundation for do to spread acceptance of autism? I don't know that it's necessarily about spreading acceptance of autism. What the Monroe County Autism Foundation does primarily is to fund, support, and services for families and individuals living with autism or affected by autism who could not otherwise access or afford them. So, for example, we have funded communication devices for individuals. We have, during 
COVID, we helped with food relief. We have helped with things for community access. We've helped with bus passes for people to be able to get to their internships. We've helped with funding swim lessons at the Y. But it has to be that the applicant or the family lives within Monterey County, Indiana. The individual has a diagnosis of autism or if they're a parent applying for a child, that child has some level of autism or a loved one with autism. We help fund what's called Camp Connections every uh, summer, which is a summer camp that's done through Monroe County Schools, but it is for K through 6th graders with some sort of documented communication disorder. So it could be autism, it could be intellectual disability, it could be something like childhood apraxia. So if there's any speech-language pathologist listening, you can render your own opinion on that you'll have to talk to someone in bloomington you'll have to talk to adam wheeler for the listeners c221 celebrating the spectrum with adam wheeler but he's a speech therapist at clear creek elementary school i know adam somewhat yes i do yeah he's a pretty cool guy so i want to hear more about this view with disclosing i thought when you mentioned it previously in an interview Tell me more about when we should disclose and not disclose. Let me start off and say disclosure is a personal choice. So whether you do or don't is up to you. But in certain situations, my answer has always been yes. For example, let's go more recently. Like when I was hired at the Institute, the first, one of the first things I did was to go to my supervisor and go to Derek who is the head of the Institute, Dr. Derek Nord. I either wrote them a letter or I just had private meetings with them. And I just said, I want you to know that I'm diagnosed with cerebral palsy and a learning disability and autism. These are some of the ways that they affect me. But I just want you to know that this is part of my daily life. Thank you for being so accommodating. If you have any questions, please feel free to approach me. And they've been absolutely wonderful. I'm out of college now. I graduated in 2010 with a BA in English and a minor in Spanish from Brescia University in Owensboro, Kentucky. It's a small private Catholic university. I also did it with all my professors. They knew and thereby I was given specific accommodations for like testing and use of a calculator on math tests, scribe for tests. Some people, particularly young adults, may not want to disclose because they may feel that out of disclosing, disclosing may, may, may be viewed differently. They don't want to, quote, receive special treatment or be looked at as special. Those who resist may do so out of fear of judgment, fear of rejection, can totally understand that in being part of the developmental disability community. Often young people with developmental disability do have experience with ridicule. Um, but I have always chosen to, to disclose in my personal situation just because I don't want there to ever be any doubt. This is the way I am. And if you want me to work in your department, I'd be more than happy to. But this is what I come with. And you have to be honest, too. It gives you a sense of comfort. So I disclose, too, because in my view, when I say it, they know, oh, he said something kind of off. Okay, he's not trying to be weird on purpose. And I think that's a good strategy, too, because it is a social communication disorder. And one of the hallmarks of difficulty is impairment with social situations and social skills. So for you to come forward and just say maybe to a, a group of peers or maybe to a professor, hey, I want you to know that I'm on the autism spectrum. If I say something that maybe has nothing to do with the conversation, this is why. People go, oh, okay. Instead of thinking, did you not take your meds this morning or what's going on? What's going on is 
I got a medical condition. <laughs> I mean, literally nothing else to it. So you did get a lot of social support though through some sitters I've heard. So what did you learn during your social support with your sitters and others? They were hired to watch us after school and then later as we grew, take us to swim practice. It was that they were also working on things like reciprocal conversation, life skills with homework. They would help with homework, but they would also work on those skills in the community. And I think, for example, if we were working on age-appropriate skills for a 13-year-old, yeah, reciprocal conversation, but how to play. We were constantly working on something from the time I was a toddler all the way till I was about 16 because I didn't get a license. And then it was staying home alone with my younger sister, Janelle, who's now 33 and a dermatologist, maybe 34, she just had a birthday, a few hours at a time staying alone. But up until then, it was social skills and developmental skills were modeled by babysitters and taking them out into the greater community. Not just the kid, can the kid do it? in the clinic it's can the kid do it at lego club can the kid do it at story hour can the kid do it at sunday night dinner out at the restaurant with mom and dad can they do it at the soccer game on saturday afternoon with the other kids here's the deal too adria even though that they may get a yes it's not going to be a yes 100 that's part of it it's a constant work in progress now folks be right back but make sure to stay tuned because we're going to hear a little more from adria it's just about her personal life a little bit but first we're going to hear an ad from the rock from 96.1 radio station so let's get to it we want to thank 96.1 the query especially david dan hayes for being a gold sponsor for our summer fest 96 resides in Bloomington, Indiana, and like Autism Rocks and Rolls, they rock and roll too. Visit their website, HTTPS Rock961FN.com. Listen to them live on their website or catch them on the radio in your car. If you like Kiss, Queen, 80s Rock, or ZZ Top, I think you have found your station. 96.1 supports our veterans, so you should support them too. Visit 96.1 and keep rocking. All right, folks, we're back. You'll definitely rock out to this station. So, Adria, I want to hear more about trivia and board game night. You did a lot of those, apparently. So why don't you tell us about that? I have done them. My favorite show is Jeopardy, and I like playing trivia, bars and stuff. When I go to a bar and play trivia, like, I'm not really there for the alcohol. I'm there to see how many questions I can get right. <laughs> You're putting yourself out there socially regardless because bars are hard for me, too, because certain social aspects in a bar when everyone's so outgoing, was it because they are sober or should it be just because of the alcohol in their system? You also are a reader. So what is your favorite book that you have read? Oh, good Lord. We could be here for a while. It depends. I really like To Kill a Mockingbird. I don't know if it's my favorite, but I do like that book. As far as children's books, I have this book. If anybody is familiar with Kevin Hinkies, he writes children's books. If you go into the, any public library, you should probably have his books. And I know for a fact that Monroe County Public Library has his book. He writes a couple of his books about these little mice. And one of them is a book called Chrysanthemum about a little mouse that hates her name and all the little other mice at school on her first day of school like make fun of her it is like one of my favorite books ever i'm not a reader at all but have you read lord of the flies i had to in school yes was it pretty good in your opinion i don't know if it was pretty good i mean i i don't know that i would want to be in the situation of being a kid on a deserted island and having to get off you know i, I was required to 
and made me want to read. If you can make me want to read in school, that says something. So you also are a swimmer. So is swimming therapy for you? If so, why is it? Now we're getting into, is this therapy? Okay. Yes, indeed, sir. I started swimming on a swim team when I was about 10. And Janelle was probably six. And my mom was looking for a sport that the both of us could do together. There weren't a lot of sports with physical disability, especially, yeah, and or mobility, I suppose, interchangeably, physical disability that I could do without getting hurt. Because back then, there weren't a lot, at least in our area, we lived in southern Indiana, about 15 minutes outside of Louisville, Kentucky. There weren't a lot of programs for kids with adapted physical sports leagues for kids with physical disability. Janelle and I had to find something that we could do together. And she thought about swimming. I loved water ever since I was itty bitty toddler and she put us in swim lessons. It's always really funny because Janelle later went on to get a college scholarship for swimming and swam for Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton, Florida. I just swam for fitness until I graduated high school. I was 18. Janelle swam in college. She swam state from the time she was 11 until she was about 18 and zones and was quite good soon as my mother would always tell us we could get in was all the way down at the other end of the pool and janelle was oh, so it was funny i still swim about three times a week here at a local pool so i tell people it's like my meditation i like the pool too but i'm nitpicky on the temperature if it's not above at a certain point, I'm not doing it because I hate the cold. I can't do freezing cold water either. I can tell from the looks of you had a wonderful family. So how did your family show that help is fine? If, Like you say before, your jacket zip. It's okay that you can ask someone to help and there's no shame in that. They started teaching me, I guess you could say self-acceptance and self-advocacy very young. I guess you could say had that discussion with me i just know that i was very little they would say things like aj it's okay you need some help with some things that the other kids might not they would tell me if you need help with your socks if you need help zipping your jacket if you need help writing your name on your paper just go ask somebody and they'll help you and so i got used to very young just starting to ask people for help with stuff so we'll wrap it up here and these are just for fun so what is your paradise meal or favorite food, and why is it your favorite? Oh my goodness. Probably Mexican. And I don't know that I have a specific dish. Just, I'm absolutely crazy about Mexican. I have about six bottles of hot sauce in my fridge at any one time. Well, you get along with my grandmother very well. For listeners, see 121 meat Tay-Tay, but she loves Mexican. Her favorite's fajitas. So what's been your favorite vacation you have ever taken? And why'd you enjoy that vacation very much? We as a family have not really had a chance to take a family vacation for a long time now. Just because everybody's been so busy. I, well, if this counts, I went to Kings Island with some good friends last summer and that was fun. That does count. Have you been to Cedar Point? It has roller coasters I, and it's pretty bigger. I have not been, but I've wanted to go. Adria? go are there any good memories they want our viewers about if you do why do you remember that memory the most but before you answer i like it to end with something sentimental that just made you feel good inside and forgot about the world can be a cruel place and a funny memory that made you fall on the floor laughing they could be with thomas be with your family your call you want to answer it buddy a good memory that made me sentimental probably on the day that I got to meet Thomas and that we scheduled the meet and greet and I got to go up to the ICANN offices in Zinesville and they told me they brought him in and they said this is your dog 
oh my gosh i was i stared at him and i remember i said hi buddy i didn't really say much at first because it hit me the seriousness of this relationship and the seriousness of the responsibility that i was about to take into my hands i think a lot of people see service dogs and they see them lay on the floor in a restaurant and they don't move a lot they see them walk down the street and they're really focused they're really calm and they think well that's not hard and it's not I guess you could say hard, but for me, it was the fact that I am now responsible not only to a living being, but also to an organization to uphold their policies and to take care of him for the better part of his life. And was that the first time you felt like a true adult? No, the first time I felt like a true adult when I had to do it for 10 years with Lucy, who was not trained by a national organization. She was privately trained, but that's what really primed me for now my second dog Thomas I just remember I was so excited and I thought oh my goodness like this is gonna be so much fun because that's what it was with Lucy it was the biggest responsibility that I've ever had in my life but it was the greatest thing I've ever done is raising a dog sometimes like a child especially a service dog is very similar yes yes just thought I asked that well Adri I think that's all is there any closing remarks you'd like to say before we head out of here just like to say thank you for having me on the show it's been a pleasure hey Jude don't make it bad take a sad song and make it better thanks for joining me for this episode please join for another episode coming in very soon i hope you enjoyed listening to me ramble thank you very much remember 